Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Oliver wasn't like everybody else. From the time he was born in 1957, he stood out from the pack, literally. It was his unique mannerisms that caught the eyes of Frank and Janet Berger in 1970. They took Oliver from his home when he was about 13 years old and raised him as one of their own. But some things about Oliver made them question whether he really was what everyone said he was. For one, his face was quite flat and he had a tendency to walk on two legs rather than with the aid of his arms. Oliver wasn't human, but then again, he wasn't supposed to be. Oliver was a chimpanzee, taken from the Congo by a couple of trainers who had hoped to work with him and study him. They soon realized that Oliver had been born different from his fellow apes in the Congo. He didn't use knuckles when he walked, instead opting to walk bipedally. He stood tall with his shoulders back, just like people. He also seemed to like being with human females more than female chimpanzees, even attempting to mate with Janet when he was 16 years old. It was then that Janet realized Oliver could no longer stay with them. The couple decided to sell him to a New York attorney, Michael Miller, who took the unusual chimpanzee on television all over the world. Oliver even appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show, sipping sherry and smoking a cigar. He was called things like The Missing Link and The Human Z, a human-chimp hybrid who bridged the gap between species. When the television shows stopped calling, Miller gave Oliver to Ralph Helfer, the owner of a California theme park. Helfer knew his way around training animals. He had been responsible for training Zamba the lion, the roaring mascot of the MGM logo. The theme park didn't do too well, though, closing up for good only a year later. But Oliver's career continued to rise. Helfer started a new attraction called Gentle Jungle, which lasted for a few years and then closed just like his last park. Oliver's popularity, however, never diminished. The Los Angeles Times ran an investigative piece about the possibility that Oliver could be an entirely new species of chimpanzee. From there, he was sold and transferred up and down the West Coast to various training and research facilities, each one treating Oliver as nothing more than a sideshow exhibit. His had become a life spent either in a cage or in front of an audience. And things only got worse in 1989, when the Buckshire Corporation of Pennsylvania purchased Oliver for their own nefarious purposes. While he didn't have cosmetics tested on him like other animals owned by the company, Oliver was kept in a small cage for almost a decade. He couldn't move or exercise, which caused his muscles to atrophy. His freedom finally came in 1996 when the Texas animal sanctuary Primarily Primates petitioned to have him released. Upon being transferred from Buckshire to Primarily Primates, Oliver walked out of his old cage on his two legs and right into his new open-air enclosure. But the troubled chimp's freedom was only visible to the public, who didn't know what was going on at his new Texan home. The founder of Primarily Primates, it seems, Wallace Sweat, was accused of animal cruelty and mismanagement of funds. The cages where Oliver and the other apes were being kept had been deemed unsafe. The facility also lacked a vet on premises, an oversight that caused, in part, the death of another research chimp by the name of Betty. Sweat was eventually removed from Primarily Primates, 
The state of Texas brought in wildlife expert Lee Thiessen-Watt to help rehabilitate the facility and Oliver himself. Her work was instrumental in giving the arthritic and partially blind Oliver a happy, peaceful rest of his life. Part of that happiness came in the form of Raisin, a female chimpanzee at the primate sanctuary. She helped him in his final years, as did his caretakers, who allowed him to participate in numerous chimp-safe activities around the facility. He particularly enjoyed painting. Oliver sadly passed away in his sleep in 2012, with Raisin by his side. He was 55 years old. He had led an extraordinary life with countless ups and downs. But was he the missing link everyone thought he was? Could this chimpanzee with a human-like face, who walked upright on two legs and fancied human women, really fill in the gap in our evolutionary history? The Buckshire Company had asked the same question back in 1996, back when Oliver was still being housed in their facility. They ran a DNA test to find the answer, and Oliver turned out to be normal. He had the standard 48 chromosomes that all chimpanzees possessed. Even though his face looked more human than that of other chimps, it was not out of the ordinary. Oliver just wanted to be more like his human counterparts, despite experiencing the exact opposite of humanity from them. He wasn't the human Z, or even the missing link. Oliver was just a living creature. And he never understood that the greatest threat to his well-being was us. When we think of the lasting devastation of World War II, we tend to think of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The two Japanese cities were leveled when American forces dropped two nuclear bombs, killing hundreds of thousands of Japanese citizens. After the Japanese surrendered on August 15th of 1945 and World War II ended less than a month later, the use of atomic bombs was studied by military experts and scholars alike. There had been numerous ethical questions about unleashing such weapons upon the public. Even J. Robert Oppenheimer, long regarded as the father of the atomic bomb, famously quoted the Bhagavad Gita when he remarked, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. He understood that as long as these weapons existed, no one on the planet would be safe. But the A-bomb wasn't the only unethical incendiary device being developed during the war. There was another, smaller bomb being considered, and just like with the atomic one, Japan was the primary target. It all started after the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th of 1941. U.S. forces were looking for a way to retaliate against Japan, and they turned to an unlikely source for a solution. A dentist. Dr. Little S. Adams was more than a dentist, though. He was also an inventor, and he had a wild idea about how to drop a bomb on almost every house in Japan without anyone knowing. The key was their size. Each bomb was tiny but could do quite a lot of damage to Japanese homes, which were constructed mainly of paper and wood. When deployed from a plane, parachutes attached to the bombs would allow them to float safely to the ground and nest in various structures, where they would wait until the appropriate time. Then, kaboom. It was dubbed Project X-Ray. Adam's plan seemed crazy at the time, but his friendship with First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt gave him the clearance to build a team to test it out. Louis Frieser, an organic chemist and inventor of napalm, came on board and was instrumental in designing the bombs themselves. He started by filling a gun cotton case with kerosene. Then he attached a small timed fuse and a trigger that could fire when the timer ran out. 
Initial tests were a surprising success. In some cases, too successful. Several bombs were launched accidentally, which destroyed a hangar, a fuel tank, and a general's car. The method of deployment required further adjustments to make sure each bomb made it to its destination without going off too early. The Marine Corps pushed Freezer, Adams, and their team back to hard work. One million bombs were commissioned to be dropped on Japan as soon as they were ready. However, despite working around the clock to get everything perfect, there was a competition heating up with the folks at Los Alamos. Oppenheimer and the other scientists behind the A-bomb, aka the Manhattan Project, were on the verge of a breakthrough. Since both projects were scheduled to be completed around the same time, and the small bombs had already cost the military upwards of $2 million, Project X-Ray was scrapped. But costs weren't the only factor hindering X-Ray's development. In order for the bombs to find their way into Japanese homes and buildings, they needed to be placed there. Remember, this was long before the age of computer guidance systems and heat-seeking missiles, so more organic methods were considered. Dr. Adams' original plan hinged on one important factor, a factor that could fly into buildings and carry double its own weight. Project X-Ray, the U.S. military's cutting-edge weapon, depended on a secret tool. Bats. Thousands and thousands of bats. The bombs, you see, were tied to the bats with wire. When lifted, the weight of each bat would trigger the fuse as it flew into a home and nested in its attic or roof. Prior to deployment in Japan, the tiny flyers would be tucked into ice cube trays and cooled into a deep sleep so that they could be transported safely from the United States. Once over Japan, B-24s would drop thousands of bats at a time, all of which had been placed into bomb-shaped capsules. Parachutes would then float them safely to the ground, where the containers would open, releasing the creatures into Japanese cities to hide and wait. But the project was both financially and ethically a failure. But they weren't the only ones to consider such a method. Coincidentally, British forces were also experimenting with animal-based explosives around the same time. Instead of bats, though, they chose to shove explosives into another type of creature and leave them near German boiler rooms. The belief was that the Germans would get rid of the animals by tossing them into the boilers, which would set off the explosion and cause destruction. And what was their choice of animal? Dead Rats I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious.